Hello and welcome to this GCP short produced in collaboration with friends of the podcast EY and focusing on the Asia Pacific captive market with specific reference to Singapore and Japan. Before we get into our short, however, I would just like to announce that the Global Captive Podcast is proud to be a media partner with Labuan IBFC's Asian Captive Conference, which will be held virtually on 2nd of December. Having attended this event in person pre-pandemic, I do urge listeners to register and attend themselves if they're keen to learn more about the Asian captive market. Being virtual provides a great opportunity to, to learn more about the region from experts associated with the fastest growing captive domicile in the Asia Pacific. A link to further information on the Asian Captive Conference can be found in the episode show notes and on the Labuan IBFC Friend of the Podcast page on the globalcaptivepodcast.com website. On with today's pod, though, and over the next 12 minutes, you will first hear from Adrian Halter, a financial services and tax partner based in Singapore and a member of EY's Global Captive Network, and then James Littlewood, a partner in client services for EY Strategy and Consulting based in Japan. Adrian provides one of the clearest explanations I've heard to date of BEPS 2.0 and how it may impact Singapore as a captive domicile, while James updates us on activity and attitudes towards captive insurance in Japan. So Adrian, we are seeing uh, captive growth in, in most, if not all, major captive domiciles around the world at the moment, due in large part, we know, to the tough insurance market conditions. And I know that 2020 was a strong year for, for Singapore in terms of new captives. Have you been seeing much new activity this year so far in Singapore? That's right, Richard. Yes, we have. The interest in Singapore captives actually seems to have picked up now that we're slowly getting over the pandemic and people seem to be pulling the trigger on project they had to shelf for a while. So if I look at the numbers, we've actually gone up from 72 to 83 licensed captives in the two years I've been here in Singapore. Right. So that's about five to six per year which is definitely more than the previous two to three per year on average. Now, it's not just the numbers of the captives, it's also the, the size, the, the premium volumes and the complexity of the insurance programs, which we can see from the stats that have grown. And, you know, like, for instance, when I look at the, what type of captives there's now, out of the new captives, three of them are composites covering both general and life business. And if I sort of you know, look ahead, then I would say based on the projects we're currently working on, whether it's a feasibility study, a captive formation or a redomiciliation of foreign captives to Singapore, it all points to the numbers going up still further. Yeah, and that's always great to hear. That's what I like to hear from every domicile, Adrian, is, is captive numbers going up and up. What, what, do, you, what do you think is driving uh, this activity then, particularly in, in Singapore? And is it coming from any particular countries or regions or, or sectors? I, I think the major driver clearly is the hard market that you point to. Another factor, and I think that's kind of related to this hard market, is the changing nature of risk. So the majority of assets that larger clients seek to protect nowadays are intangible assets and not the factories and buildings of the past. So if we just use some of the classical examples, cyber and non-physical damage business interruption, say caused by lockdown measures and you know new liability risks, 
all of these are hard to cover in the traditional markets. Now, now that has an impact on what kind of captives we see and what kind of captive owners, because we now see a bit more financial services as well as the newer industries. Best way to put that one is just to think of anybody with a large digital transformation of the business model. And if we if we look at the geography, then typically, as you know, historically, Singapore has been dominated by Australian-owned captives. But over recent years, the number of other jurisdictions represented is increasing as well. We have a couple of Japanese uh, two, three ca captives here. And, but we also have a, a number now of non-Asian jurisdictions. Well, it's interesting you mentioned Japan there, Adrian, because we'll come on to Japan in more detail with James in a bit. But we've talked previously on the pod with, with some of your colleagues uh, at EY about the OECD's base erosion and profit shifting or BEPS initiative and how it is or might impact captives now and in the future, primarily in Europe, though. That's how we've mostly addressed it. But the next phase of BEPS, uh, labelled BEPS 2.0, will likely introduce, we think, a, a global minimum tax rate of 15%. How do you expect this to be implemented in, in Singapore and, and what kind of impacts do you think it might have on captive operations or strategies in the jurisdiction? To answer your question, uh, um, Richard, allow me a moment to go back to the current BEPS regime. Sure. So, and, and, and how what Singapore's attitude is and how it has implemented it. So Singapore is a member of the OECD's inclusive framework and has actively supported BEPS from the beginning. And we can see that in the way uh, how the current captive tax incentive scheme works, the, the one which grants you a preferential tax rate of 10% as opposed to the standard rate of 17%. So this regime no longer distinguishes between onshore and offshore revenue. So the, uh, the OCT views on ring fencing has been uh, accepted. And also the new substance requirements mean that you need two qualified professionals to qualify for the incentive scheme. So outsourcing all functions to the captive managers is still perfectly possible, but then you won't qualify for the tax incentive scheme. In, in practice, we have found that most captives can live perfectly well with a lean setup and a tax rate of 17%, which is still quite favorable compared to most of their home jurisdiction tax rates. So in a nutshell, Singapore's other strengths, such as regulatory regime, the stability, the currency, the language skills, hub functionality, the huge tax treaty network, etc., are more important than a low tax rate. I just wanted to sort of establish that one before we go on to the yeah. new regime, because the answer kind of follows from this, right? So with the new BEPS 2.0 project, where pillar Two will give you the 15% global minimum tax rate, and which is expected to be implemented by 2023. Now, the way that one will work is, is by way of a top-up tax, where the parent jurisdiction can tax the difference between the required 15% and the actual lower tax rate in the subsidiary jurisdiction. If that top-up doesn't take place, then jurisdictions can deny tax deduction for payments going to related parties in such low jurisdictions. Now, the rules are a bit more complicated than that, but that's what it's really all about. So these rules will apply to large groups only with a global turnover of at least 750 million euros. Now, like for BEPS, the original BEPS, Singapore 
is expected to introduce these rules. How exactly? It's a little bit early to say, but one likely scenario is that Singapore will change its tax rules for those multinational companies potentially impacted. And the way it will do this, it will increase their tax to a minimum of 15% to ensure that these companies get taxed in Singapore at the globally agreed minimum rate and do not suffer any such top-up tax overseas. If we then compare this with the current situation, where most captives prefer a 17% tax rate over having to employ two qualified professionals, then it seems reasonable that this new regime should not have any significant adverse effect if Singapore is a captive domicile. In fact, I'd go as far as say Singapore is one of those locations that could well profit from the new regime, yeah. both in term of new captives and in terms of redomiciliation of existing captives. To give you an example, if your captive is in a location with zero or very little tax, and if such local tax rate was a key argument for choosing that location, then that strategy may need reconsidering the new normal, where that tax will be 15% anyway. So. If, if that's the case, then captive owner might actually want to opt for a location which fits better into their overall strategy and which offers benefits other than tax, which is exactly what Singapore will continue to do and what we'll try to expand. Fascinating. Really, really well explained, Adrian. That's one of the best ways I've heard some of the BEPS initiatives and, and this one in particular explained. And you've definitely contextualized Singapore and Singapore's position in this discussion very, very well. So I do appreciate that. We did touch briefly on Japan there. So let's bring uh, James in now regarding Japan. We've seen quite a bit of activity, I think, from the Japanese corporations uh, regarding setting up new captives over the, over the past few years. James, you're involved in a, a relatively new captive focus group in Tokyo at EY. What has led EY to, to take the step in setting up this this captive group? And, and why do you think there is a growing interest at the moment uh, in captives in Japan? Cheers, Richard. First of all, thanks for having me on. So here in Japan, obviously, EY has been doing work uh, with captives for many years. So our actuarial teams or tax teams have been serving our Japanese corporate clients. And all we're really doing is introducing a bit more formality. So we've joined our EY Global Captive Network, the leadership team, yep. uh, working with Adrian and others. And so what do you think is uh, leading this growing interest in, in captives in Japan at the moment, James? So I think there's really two things to call out. First of all, obviously, the hard market. That is a traditional inspiration for people to issue RFPs on this topic. But I think the second one's quite an interesting one, which is really... What's kind of happened over the last 20 years is Japanese corporations have made acquisitions. So they've bought businesses maybe in America or in Europe that actually already have captives within them. So they're sort of learning through acquisition around how captives could actually work. And they're showing increasing interest in studying whether those principles could also apply to the wider group and particularly Japan. Uh, yeah, I'm certainly aware of a few of those exact cases you talk about through, through acquisition, particularly in, in the United States and over here, actually, in, in the UK and Europe. Where have Japanese corporates traditionally looked to, to domicile their, their captives, James? Because I, I seem to come across Japanese-owned captives in all jurisdictions, one or two here and there. Or is there one jurisdiction which is particularly emerging, do you think, as the preferred destination? 
accommodation for, for Japanese corporates to put their captives. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting one. Obviously, I'm no sort of Japanese tax law historian as to why people have decided over the last sort of 20, 30 years to go to different places or what was on offer. And it's hard looking from 2021, looking backwards. It's really hard to see patterns because, as you said, they're like Guam, Saipan, the Micronesia states, Vermont. You can probably find a Japanese captive anywhere. Yeah. But I think one of the, the sort of trends I'd say is really Hawaii. So particularly for more large cap Japanese corporates, particularly anything that's got more sophisticated needs, Hawaii definitely seems to be the location. That may be just proximity, but that does seem to be a place where you could see critical mass emerging. Yeah, absolutely. So when it comes to captive strategy itself, then James, do you, do you see much of a split between the Japanese domestic business and and their international business and risks? Do they seem to want to treat the, the risk financing differently when it's the domestic Japanese risks or the, the international risks? Yeah, I think historically, most I mean, Japanese sort of corporate acquisitions have tended to have a Japan business than the international business, which obviously the US probably did that in the 80s and 90s. So it follows a similar kind of model. There are some companies that are thinking more holistically, but I think that's, yeah, it's some of the large trading houses, some of the the sort of retail brands think more holistically. But for the most part, that traditional model of having international business as well as the Japanese domestic business, pretty separate. And therefore, it's hard to have a holistic captive strategy over businesses that are pretty not working together on multiple different topics. So I think the way you set it out here in terms of the split will be the case. But whether that's the case going forward in the next five, 10 years, we will see. Does that mean then, James, does that traditionally translate to having maybe, if they have got captives, then maybe having one international captive uh, in, in a Vermont or a Hawaii, which does right, the international risk of the business, and then maybe another captive, maybe Micronesia or, or closer to home, which is addressing domestic risks, or will they just or will they just place those domestic risks traditionally in the in the traditional market? Well, it almost comes back to the thing we were saying. You can find cases of all of these things, <laughs> so it's it's hard to pick out the trend. But I do think that that model, and it's probably happened at different times where. And I think it's also important that the industry here, so say some of the big pharma companies or people with product recall probably think more internationally. So where there's a a clear sort of driver in that sector as to why you'd think more holistically, you'd probably put these things together and place risks on a more global basis. But for the most part, I think people have thought about as part of their international acquisitions, having captives as part of that story. So that's been quite distinct from the domestic business, which normally tended to happen later. Well, thank you to Adrian Holter and James Littlewood, both of EY, for a really insightful update from Singapore and Japan. If you would like more information on our guests or the EY Global Captive Network, please do visit globalcaptivepodcast.com and EY's Friend of the Podcast page. In the meantime, stay safe, stay well, and see you next time, captives.